science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. Hey, can anyone tell me where I can find a non-chemical food ingredient? I asked because I saw a newspaper article that talked about hydrolyzed vegetable protein, which is a common flavoring agent, and it began like this. It sounds more like a chemical than a food ingredient. Well... If a food ingredient isn't a chemical, pray tell me, what on earth is it? Of course it's a chemical. Everything in the world is made up of chemicals, which are nothing other than the building blocks of all matter. The oxygen we breathe, the water we drink, the sugar we eat, all chemicals, as are the medications we swallow, the cosmetics we apply, and the pesticides that we spray. But somehow... Chemical has become a dirty word, synonymous with toxin, and chemical-free is now a popular, albeit <laughs> ridiculous, advertising slogan. Chemicals are not good or bad. They're not dangerous or safe. They don't make decisions. We do. And those decisions should be based on science, not on emotion. A chemical's properties are determined by its molecular composition and structure, not by its ancestry. Whether a molecule was made by nature in a plant or by a chemist in a lab is irrelevant. It is what that research has revealed about its properties that matters. Because there are some 130 million known chemicals, naming them becomes complicated because they have to have unique names. And these names may seem terrifying to the uninitiated. For example, the food babe, self-appointed nutritional guru with a large following. She tells us that if you can't pronounce it, you should not be eating it. You know what? The number of syllables in a chemical's name has no more to do with its properties than whether it comes from a natural or a synthetic origin. Obviously, when dealing with millions of known compounds, each requires a unique name. Complex terminology must enter the picture. Now, chemists, of course, are thankful for the systematic nomenclature. And, you know, this has been worked out and the same system is used by chemists around the world. But as far as the public goes, complex chemical names are frightening and they tend to conjure up images of doom. Some marketers attempt to capitalize on this fear by advertising chemical-free products. And so we have chemical-free cosmetics, cleaning agents, and believe it or not, books about chemical-free kids. The message is that chemical-free means safer, healthier, greener, Given that it is a nonsensical term, what are these products all about? Well, mostly chemical-free refers to being free of synthetic chemicals. This, of course, insinuates that synthetic chemicals are more problematic than natural ones, an inference that is not valid. 
Take, for example, the case of chemical-free sunblocks. These are often based on titanium dioxide, a natural occurring mineral. Uh, it reflects sunlight. And you know, it used to be when you saw the lifeguards with, with the white noses, uh, that was because it was covered with uh, either titanium dioxide or zinc dioxide. Today, these formulations are, are better and you don't have the, the, this uh, appalling whiteness. But anyway, uh, these chemicals, because of course that's what they are, reflect sunlight. So what are they referring to in terms of these being chemical-free? Well, most uh, uh, sunscreens today uh, contain substances that will absorb the ultraviolet light of the sun and essentially dissipate it as, as heat. But these things like oxybenzone uh, are synthetic substances. They're made in the laboratory whereas titanium dioxide is a mineral that can be mined. And this is how they make this distinction of that something that occurs in nature, like titanium dioxide, is, is uh, in their uh, strange thinking, is not a chemical. Well, of course it is. Uh, it's safe enough. I mean, the, uh, I'm not trying to suggest that there's anything wrong with titanium dioxide. Uh, but to say that uh, a product that contains this is chemical-free is sheer nonsense. Uh, mainstream food producers are also trying to capitalize on the anti-chemical fervor. McCain Foods, for example, once had a campaign to use only, quote, real ingredients in its pizzas. Well, what does that mean? Were they using imaginary ingredients before or fake ones? Plaster of Paris instead of flour? Play-Doh instead of cheese? Here's what McCain said. It's all about the ingredients and good food, frozen or not, starts with real ingredients. We know that when you look at an ingredient list, you want to see familiar ingredients, not ingredients you can't pronounce. You know why? It makes me want to scream some words that can be pronounced very easily. According to the ads, uh, the company aimed to remove unfamiliar ingredients. Specifically mentioned were sodium stereolactylate and sodium ascorbate. Why remove these? There's absolutely no scientific reason. It's all a question of marketing. Both are approved food additives and have undergone rigorous testing. Sodium stereolactylate is an emulsifier used in baked goods like pizza dough. It disperses the fats in the dough, allowing less fat to be used while softening the dough's texture at the same time. Since it is made from lactic acid found in milk and stearic acid found in beef tallow, you could even call it natural. Some ascorbate is just the sodium salt of vitamin C and it's used as an antioxidant to prevent fat from going rancid. These additives actually make for a better dough. Removing them just caters to the wave of chemophobia. We live in a chemical world with a novel substance being isolated or synthesized roughly every two and a half seconds. That's pretty amazing. Rather than representing a cause for worry, this just shows the amazing progress of science. Most of these new chemicals will never become anything other than listings in uh, chemical abstracts, but some will become key ingredients in new drugs and fabrics, plastics, electronics, and a myriad other items, which certainly will not be chemical free.
But if you insist on buying a truly chemical-free product, remember that you won't be getting a very good deal because you'll be buying something that contains nothing. Only a vacuum is actually chemical-free. Interesting enough, in all of this talk uh, about eliminating additives from food, like from pizza, the so-called unpronounceable uh, uh, additives, uh, they are very silent about another additive that is pervasive in pizza and which certainly is problematic because it can drive up your blood pressure. Eat a slice of pizza, and who can eat only one? But one slice contains about 800 milligrams of sodium. Two slices will put you over your daily limit. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. One of the questions that uh, we get asked often in my office here is uh, about decaf. Why? Because uh, caffeine can make you jittery. It can keep you awake. And uh, you know what? It can even make you pee more often. That much we know for sure. Other allegations against caffeine are circumspect. No scientific studies have conclusively linked caffeine to high blood pressure, osteoporosis, or arthritis. Actually, we have recently learned that coffee contains a variety of antioxidants, which may even be beneficial to our health. Uh, still, wisdom would dictate that we do not go overboard with our caffeine intake. While many people seem to guzzle those uh, proliferating giant mugs of latte with no ill effects, there's no doubt that some get wired even from a small amount of caffeine and prefer their brew without this stimulant. Well, you know what? Chemistry can accommodate them. We don't really know why some plants produce caffeine. Perhaps they do so to ward off insects. Perhaps they release caffeine into the soil uh, to do away with rival seeds. Perhaps they want to protect themselves from people who want to grind up their seeds and drink the extract. Now, some of those people want the extract without the caffeine. They want decaffeinated coffee. There are several processes that can accomplish this. They all rely on the fact that caffeine is soluble and all start with soaking the coffee beans in hot water. This extracts the caffeine but it also extracts many of the flavor compounds. The idea now is to remove the caffeine from this extract and then reintroduce the flavor components back into the beans. First, a solvent is needed which does not mix with water and in which the caffeine is more soluble than it is in water. The classic ones used have been methylene chloride and ethyl acetate, although the very first solvent that was ever used was benzene. And in those days, they didn't worry all that much about toxicity. Well, they should have, because benzene is a, a carcinogen. And uh, you do not want any remnants of that in your food supply or in your beverage. But that was phased out long ago in favor of methylene chloride. Well, methylene chloride is better than benzene, but it still has a skeleton in its uh, closet. It's still pretty, pretty toxic. 
and then it was replaced by ethyl acetate, uh, which is much better. Ethyl acetate actually occurs in, in many fruits and, and vegetables. And, uh, you know, so that uh, they can actually label the decaffeination process as natural because ethyl acetate does occur in fruits. However, of course, when it is used as a solvent, it is used in much, much higher doses than anything that is found in, in, in fruits. So basically, you know, labeling the process natural as a crock because ethyl acetate is not found naturally in the amounts used in the decaffeination process. In any case, the water extract is shaken with the solvent, which dissolves the caffeine, and since the solvent does not mix with the water, it can be readily separated. The beans are then re-soaked in the water to reabsorb the flavors. Of course, not all the flavor compounds are reabsorbed, so decaf will never taste exactly like regular coffee. Note that extracting solvent never comes into contact with the beans themselves, so any residue remaining would be really in trace amounts. Despite this, people have been concerned about the use of chemicals to decaffeinate their coffee, and processors have come up with other systems. Highly compressed carbon dioxide gas can be used to extract the caffeine from the beans. This is an efficient process, and of course there's no residue to worry about because any uh, carbon dioxide that is, that escapes, just mixes with the air, which already contains carbon dioxide anyway. The Swiss water process is also heavily promoted and sometimes absurdly described as chemical-free. Green coffee beans are soaked in water and the resulting green coffee bean extract is passed through an activated carbon filter that removes the caffeine. This is the same kind of activated carbon that you have in, in your uh, breathe up filters at home or you're under the, the sink water filter because uh, activated carbon, which is just carbon that has been heated to high temperature in the absence of oxygen, is very good at adsorbing substances. It attracts them to its surface uh, because the surface is, is speckled with little holes so that it has a very large surface area. <clears throat> the problem is that the extract also contains hundreds of other compounds that are critical to coffee flavor many of which would also be removed by the carbon filter. But there is a way around this. You preload the filter with chemicals that are unlike caffeine in molecular structure, but similar to other flavor and color compounds found in coffee. Sugar and formic acid are the chemicals used. So obviously the process isn't chemical free. Since the activated carbon's adsorption sites for such chemicals are now occupied, the filter will not remove coffee components other than caffeine. The result is a green coffee bean extract that has the components of coffee except for caffeine. The next step is to soak fresh green coffee beans in this extract. Since the solution is now already saturated with coffee compounds other than caffeine, it will only extract the caffeine leaving behind green coffee beans now devoid of caffeine. Roasting these yields decaffeinated coffee beans ready to be brewed. The caffeine-rich solution can again be passed through the carbon filter to remove the caffeine, and the now caffeine-free green coffee bean extract can be used once more 
to remove the caffeine from yet another fresh batch of green coffee beans. Passing this solution through the filter again removes the caffeine and the cycle continues in this fashion. Once the activated carbon becomes saturated with caffeine, it can be recycled by heating to burn off the caffeine. Unlike other decaffeination processes, the caffeine is not recovered and cannot be sold, thereby increasing the cost of the process. Obviously, there's a great deal of ingenious science behind the removal of caffeine from coffee beans, but um, most coffee drinkers, of course, crave the caffeine and look upon decaf drinkers as, as wimps. The, the processes certainly uh, have been improved, uh, you know, since the old days when benzene was used to extract the, the caffeine. But uh, no matter how much um, ingenuity, you know, has been applied, uh, decaf coffee will never taste exactly the same as regular coffee. First of all, because the, the caffeine does give you that, that little jolt that people like. And um, also, it is not possible to reintroduce all of the flavor compounds. Now, you uh, may have heard I referred in this little uh, uh, talk to the green coffee beans. And that may conjure up uh, Dr. Oz for you, because you may remember that uh, on several of his programs, he pushed green coffee bean extract as a remedy for uh, weight control. And uh, there was one very preliminary study that showed some benefit, but it has been totally discounted. And there's no benefit from what is known as green coffee bean extract. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hey, I want to tell you an interesting story about uh, Epsom salt. In 1618, a farmer in England noticed that he could lead his cows to water, but he could not make them drink. He tasted the well water himself and realized right away that there was some wisdom to the cow's behavior. The water tasted terribly bitter. Something that tasted so awful must be good for something, he thought. Well, it turns out it was. The, the water made for a very nice, soothing, hot foot bath and even had a healing effect on scratches and skin rashes. The most dramatic effect, however, came when the farmer drank a whole glass of the water. Let's just say that the result was a rather hasty trip to the outhouse. What was so special about this water? It didn't take the farmer long to figure it out. When he allowed the water to evaporate, he was left with copious amounts of a white powdery residue. Epsom salt, he called it, and the name stuck. Why? Because, you know, Epson was the place where this well was located. And uh, eventually, Epsom salts became a huge commercial success. Epsom salt is still used today for its ability to soothe inflammation by withdrawing water from muscles and tissues, and on occasion is still used as a laxative. Now, of course, we know that the active ingredient is magnesium sulfate. Our British farmer wasn't the first to notice the bitter taste of this substance. 
that distinct honor may well go to Moses. The Bible recounts how after leaving Egypt, the Israelites wandered around the desert with very little food and very little water. And then one day, much to their delight, they came upon a pond, the pond of Marach. Their happiness, however, was short-lived because the water turned out to be so bitter that they could not drink it. Moses then turned to his research director and got good advice. As the Bible says, the Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. What happened here? The main components of wood are cellulose and lignin. These compounds, when subjected to sun exposure, develop so-called ion exchange properties, meaning that they can absorb both magnesium and sulfate ions. In a sense, Moses ended up purifying the water and made it sweet to drink. Okay, but now let's get back to bathing in water with Epsom salts. Not only is it supposed to be relaxing and soothing, but it's also set to relieve pain and reduce inflammation. There are numerous products that boast these salts and their benefits, and these treatments are often given in spas. The concept of floating was created by the neuroscientist John C. Lilly and first became a thing in the 1970s. This meant that you would go pay some money and float in a pool or you know a large tub uh, in which a lot of magnesium sulfate was dissolved. It dropped off the popularity scale in the 1990s, but uh, occasionally resurfaces, and uh, you know these floating tanks appear, and uh, you know they uh, charge you money, and uh, you know usually you know last about a half an hour. And, uh, you know, anywhere from $50 to $100 to, to float around there. The tanks vary in style and price. Classic style is box-like plastic model designed to be, uh, you know, sort of dark and silent. You're kind of enclosed in it. Cost about $6,000 to $15,000 if you want to buy one. Uh, they kind of look like pods. They're made of fiberglass and and you get into them sort of like you're getting into uh, a sports car. And uh, hundreds of pounds of Epsom salts are added to these tanks to make the user really feel buoyant. And the water is warmed, you know, around 35 degrees. Uh, you hope that these tanks get cleaned often and, uh, you know, that they get disinfected. <laughs> anyway, is there any truth to, to, you know, these treatments with Epsom salts being beneficial? I mean, you know, should we look to float in order to improve our health? Well, according to a study at Karlslott University in Sweden, a 45-minute floating session over seven weeks did reduce stress, depression, and anxiety. Although I would think that with the amount you have to pay for it, it would have created some anxiety. Uh, it also reduced any self-reported various types of pain, such as neck and shoulder pain. Uh, the study, however, only looked at 65 people and is therefore deemed uh, to be too small to really get any solid proof of any benefit. It's possible that uh, when a person uh, floats, you know, for half an hour in one of these things, uh, their cortisol levels drop. 
but again, uh, you know, this this would require uh, a much better study than just a few people, you know, floating around for uh, half an hour and and claiming that they feel better. Uh, what is interesting is that this uh, floating has also been shown to improve a number of skills, ranging from rifle marksmanship to basketball to jazz performance, or so it is claimed. Uh, back about uh, 15 years ago, Canadian researchers decided to look at a group of students who were part of a jazz ensemble. And these students would float for one hour a week every month. Believe it or not, this group had a greater improvement in technical skills, such as playing the keyboard, than the other non-floating group. But this study was small. doesn't prove that there is a connection between floating and musical performance. So what do we take away from all this? Floating in these baths seems to have a soothing effect and reduces stress, which may provide some health benefits. Uh, but many people claim that just soaking in an ordinary hot tub or in a bathtub relaxes them, uh, even without ever adding any sort of uh, Epsom salt to the water. Uh, so, you know, with these kind of things, it's, it's always hard to know uh, to what extent the placebo effect kicks in. Because if you think that something is going to do wonders for you, it very often does, <clears throat> especially if it isn't something that that uh, hurts, you know, uh, if it's uh, something simple as floating in a bathtub or po or popping some sugar pill, uh, then the uh, placebo effect will kick in uh, very easily. There's nothing wrong with adding some magnesium salt to you, magne magnesium sulfate to your bath. Uh, to to relax you, <clears throat> and there actually is uh, uh, some benefit to the skin. It will soften the skin, but whether it's going to allow you to play music better uh, or you know really dress, uh, that's very very questionable. Uh, but uh, one other thing that the farmer in Epsom noticed is that when he peed outdoors. And he happened to sort of miss and peed on his boots. His boots were left with a white residue. And that also was Epsom salt. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, you know that I'm in a storytelling mood today. So I'm going to tell you about Gilder's palsy and Hatter's shakes. Today, physicians are unlikely to encounter Gilder's palsy, nor are they likely to diagnose a patient with Hatter's shakes. But prior to the 20th century, these ailments had to be considered when a patient presented with tremors, irritability, increased salivation, and fatigue. The culprit was mercury. In the case of the hatters, it was mercury nitrate used to produce felt. Beaver and rabbit fur, the traditional materials for making felt, can be matted more easily when the pelts are first treated with mercury nitrate, a chemical that opens up the pine cone-like layers known as imbrications on the surface of individual hairs. When these are opened up, adjacent hairs can interlock more readily. Hatters invariably got the mercury nitrate on their hands, 
And since their hygiene was probably less than exemplary, they ended up ingesting some of the toxin. Mercury's toxicity is a consequence of its ready binding to sulfur, an element that is a crucial component of many enzymes. Enzymes, of course, are these special proteins that act as biological catalysts. And uh, these are the ones that are needed to make the reactions in our body function. And those are the reactions that constitute life. All of the biochemical reactions involved in, in digestion and in lung function, heart function, etc. Well, some of these enzymes are critical to the workings of the central nervous system and their failure to function properly when bound to mercury causes the shakes and mental disturbances that are characteristic of mercury poisoning. Gilders, whose profession was based on coating metal objects with gold, exhibited symptoms similar to that of the Hatters. Their problems, however, came not from exposure to compounds of mercury, but from exposure to metallic mercury, the silvery liquid found in thermometers. The Romans called the metal hydrargyrum, meaning liquid silver. That also explains why we use the symbol Hg for the element. Unlike mercury nitrate, liquid mercury is somewhat volatile and can therefore be inhaled and absorbed into the bloodstream from the lungs. Metallic mercury does not occur in nature, but it can be produced by heating cinnabar, a naturally occurring form of mercury sulfide. The metal has long fascinated people, especially the alchemists, who thought that it was the key to the transmutation of base metals into gold. Of course, it was not that, but there is a gold connection. Gold readily forms an alloy with mercury, a phenomenon that is apparent to anyone who has handled mercury while wearing a gold ring. While playing with mercury is a bad idea, the historical alloying with mercury to form gold amalgam has been an important method for isolating gold from ores. The traditional process involves crushing the gold ore, mixing it with mercury, and separating the amalgam that forms. This is then heated to drive off the volatile mercury, leaving pure gold behind. But it can leave something else behind as well, the misery of mercury poisoning. And met many a button gilder could have testified to that. Military uniforms commonly feature golden buttons. Until about the middle 1800s, these were made by dipping metal buttons into gold amalgam and then heating to evaporate the mercury. The layer of gold left behind was very thin. Just one gram of gold was enough to gild about 500 buttons. The results for the buttons were pretty, but for humans, not so much. On occasion, even construction workers had to deal with Gilder's palsy. About 100 kilos of gold were mixed with mercury for application to the copper sheets that were used to create the golden dome that adorns the Cathedral of St. Isaac in St. Petersburg. The dome, unfortunately, is also a symbol of mercury poisoning. Some 60 workers died as a result of mercury inhalation. However, the chemical ingenuity of two Italians would eventually put Gilder's palsy on the back burner. In 1800, 
Alessandro Volta's discovery of an electric current flowing between two dissimilar metals separated by moistened cardboard established the chemical principles that would lead to the first battery. Just five years later, his friend, Luigi Brunatelli, reported in Belgian Journal of Physics and Chemistry how he had put the voltaic pile to use. Quote, I have lately gilt in a complete manner two large silver medals by bringing them to communication by means of a steel wire with a negative pole of a voltaic pile and keeping them one after the other immersed in ammoniuret of gold, newly made and well-saturated. What Brunatelli had discovered was electroplating, the process that would be commercialized eventually by Henry and George Elkington of Birmingham, England, in 1840. Well, of course, uh, today, uh, mercury is just as toxic as it ever was. However, our exposure has been very significantly reduced. For example, I, I don't even know if you can find a mercury thermometer in stores these days. I, I, I think probably not. Uh, in fact, you may remember that there was a whole movement uh, to replace mercury with, with alcohol thermometers or with electronic thermometers. And today, of course, the electronic ones are the ones that are uh, wide in widespread use. And you would just go into a pharmacy, you'd give in your old mercury thermometer and you'd get a, a new electronic one for uh, for free. So we have uh, uh, we don't have to worry about broken mercury uh, thermometers and, and the mercury uh, vaporizing. The only... Um, a real concern about uh, mercury now is in ingesting it uh, in fish. How does that happen? Because mercury is a natural uh, contaminant of oil and coal. And when these are burned, the mercury gets into the air and it gets washed down by rain and it gets into rivers, lakes, and the ocean where fish can absorb it. And the larger fish eat the smaller fish and uh, the mercury gets concentrated in the larger fish. And this can be an issue uh, for pregnant women uh, or for babies. Uh, for adults, uh, the amount of mercury would be uh, inconsequential. So uh, you learned something about mercury toxicity and uh, some of the other stories. And uh, you also know something about the nonsense of labeling something as chemical-free. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I hope all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.